1: We've spoken every once in a while on the show about the appalling human rights violations going on in Russia and what's being done to the LGBT community in Russia. A series of anti-gay laws have been passed that have basically criminalized being openly gay. They're called anti-gay propaganda laws. No one is allowed to say anything. No one at all, gay, lesbian, bi, trans or straight, is allowed to say anything in public that could be construed as pro-gay, make any sort of statement, any speech – And to be out and gay and fine about it is considered speech and this is all under the guise of protecting children from being recruited. It's all packaged as an anti-pedophile campaign and it has led to all sorts of really appalling human rights violations in Russia, people being beaten in the streets and then arrested. Not the people who beat the person being arrested but the person who was beaten up being arrested. Gay pride parades have been banned in St. Petersburg for a hundred years. An identical law was passed in Moscow, banning gay pride parades for 100 years. There's appalling videos online. Uh, For example, a guy holds up a rainbow flag with a statement on it that says, I support tolerance and he is beaten up by a crowd of Russian paratroopers and then hauled away by the police. Other laws are allegedly rumored to be in the offing uh, that would remove children from the homes of their parents if their parents were gay or lesbian. Uh, People are beginning to flee Russia. Queer people are fleeing Russia and claiming asylum in nations like Canada and the United States and the European Union. Masha Gessen, who is a Russian lesbian with three children, uh, recently announced that she is leaving Russia, fleeing Russia because she fears that her children will be taken from her and her partner. She spoke last week in New York City uh, at a town hall meeting at the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual and Transgender Community Center in New York where she said, we're kind of past the point where silence can ever protect. At this point, the more Russians know and the Kremlin knows that the world is watching, the safer we feel on the ground. She also went on to talk about the vodka boycott, which I helped promote on Twitter and on uh, Slog the Stranger's Blog uh, because of the timing of my vacation, I wasn't really able to talk with you much about it on the podcast. But some people have said that the vodka boycott, Dump Stoli and all Russian vodkas including Russian Standard and all other brands, this targeted boycott of that iconic Russian product is misplaced, that it is, uh, that is it wrong. I would direct everyone who's making that argument to read the wonderful piece of The Atlantic entitled The Vodka Boycott is Working Whether You Like It or Not. But here's what Masha Gessen, Russian journalist, author of the book The Man Without a Face, a biography of Vladimir Putin had to say about the vodka boycott at this community meeting in New York last week. One of the best moments of my time was when I was in my car 10 days ago in Moscow and I turned on the radio and they were talking about the vodka boycott on every radio station. This is getting media attention. It was really amazing. Suddenly, we've been granted visibility that we hadn't had in years. That's because of the vodka boycott. No one who's involved in the dump Russian vodka – Dot .com boycott campaign claimed when the boycott was simultaneously announced in New York and San Francisco and Seattle that this would bring Russia to its knees, that it, would, that it would lead to the collapse of the Russian economy, that Putin would be shown the door. The idea was by calling for this boycott, it gave people something to talk about. People would be talking about the boycott. Why are people boycotting vodka? And then that would lead to a conversation about these heinous laws, and these heinous human rights violations in Russia and it has worked and we are going to keep it up. The trick now is to keep the conversation going, to keep the attention on this issue, to keep people talking on radio stations and in the newspapers all around the world about this issue, about these human rights violations in Russia and to do that to that end. Boycott of Russian Vodka continues. Go to dumprussianvodka.com for more info or queernationny.org for tons more info and coverage of this issue, but also through other actions. There have been huge protests and demonstrations in Denmark and Copenhagen, in Paris, in New York City. Uh, There's a day of action that's now been called against Coca-Cola, not to boycott Coca-Cola, but to... Ask Coca-Cola to take a stand. Coca-Cola is a major sponsor of the Sochi Olympics which take place in 2014 coming up this winter in Sochi, Russia and there is a lot of controversy about whether athletes and visitors will be arrested for the crime of being either openly gay at the Olympics or pro-gay at the Olympics. Both are criminalized. So we have to keep the conversation going and keep the pressure up and to that end, All Out and other queer organizations around the world have called for a Speak Out for Russia Day. It's Tuesday, September 3rd. Go to allout.org slash events to find out about events in the city where you live or how to make an event happen in the city where you live. Speaking of the city where I live, Seattle, Washington, Seattle is home to a Russian consulate one of the four in the United States. And there is going to be a demonstration in Seattle on September 3rd at 4.30 p.m. on the sidewalk outside the Russian Consular Residence, 3726 East Madison Street, Seattle, Washington, 98112. There are other events planned for New York and San Francisco. This is the event in my town and I want – if you are a Seattle listener, I want to make this event happen. I want to get the attention of the world. I want to get the attention of the Russian government. September 3rd is the day before the G20 meeting in Russia. All these world leaders, 20 nations gathering in Russia including – President Barack Obama and this is the day before we want these demonstrations to make sure that these human rights abuses are on the agenda when the elected heads of governments that do not persecute LGBT people meet with Vladimir Putin in Russia that this is on their minds and on the agenda and this is how we do it. By having these demonstrations the day before in cities all over the world. What are we going to do at this event? We're going to wave signs. We're going to ask people to honk. We're going to invite the media to come and cover it. No one's going to get arrested. We may dump out some Russian vodka and leave the bottles on the sidewalk in front of the Russian consulate. But we are going to create a media event that allows – that's what these things do, a demonstration like that's not going to topple the Russian government. It's not going to make the Russian consular officials run screaming or leave the country. It's going to give the media something that they can focus on and talk about and then they talk about why are these people here? Well, here's why these people are here and they have to discuss it. They have to discuss the issue. This is after – this has been going on for years. This ever-increasing persecution of LGBT people in Russia by an increasingly totalitarian and fascistic government and we have to push back. We have to respond because it is now criminal for people in Russia to respond. So again, if you are in London, if you are in New York, if you're in San Francisco, go to allout.org slash Russia events. If you're in Seattle, pay attention to The Stranger. We'll have an announcement in the paper this week about the event at the Russian Consulate Residence. And do something, say something, speak up, get out there, help people who cannot right now help themselves very effectively by making a noise here in Seattle that they hear at the G20 summit in Russia and that they hear before the Olympic Games in 2014 in Sochi. And now your calls.
2: Hi, Dan. I'm a longtime listener. I'm in my 30s.
0: I'm a former sex educator and peer counselor. I'm sex positive, anti slut shaming, GGG with my husband of five years. But uh, this call isn't about us, it's about his daughter. His daughter is 14 years old, and I love her like my own. She is bright and caring, with a laid-back personality and a wicked sense of humor. She lives with us during the summers and with her mother across the country in the school year. I've known her since she was seven, and she has always been sexually precocious, not in a way that made me concerned about abuse or anything, just very, 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 very curious. So uh, she's grown into a gorgeous young woman with a body that I guess I can only describe as banging. She's got a wardrobe full of tiny clothes that she adjusts to make it even tinier, and she has an insatiable curiosity about sex and bodies. and she talks about it all, them, talks about them all the time, all the time, to us, to our friends, which makes me very uncomfortable, and to her report to her peers. She's very sexually aggressive in conversation, um, in drama club improvs, et cetera. She's actually very inexperienced, but her interest is clear. And when I ask her if most of her friends are as focused on sex as she is, or at least as assertive about their interests, she says that they're not. And she knows that sometimes she makes people feel uncomfortable, but oh well. Her dad, my beloved husband, thinks it's awesome that she's so open with us about her curiosity. And to some degree, I agree. On the other hand, I'm a little squicked out by it. I mean, doesn't she want to, like, keep things from her parents? But more, I'm concerned about the impression she's given people. Okay, boys, especially older boys to whom she's exposed through older siblings and friends. Like I said, I don't want to slut-shame anybody, including her. I want to have a conversation with her about how to consider adjusting her performance of self in the age of Twitter and selfies and stupidville. Again, I believe in no means no, no matter what you're wearing or how big teasing you've been. I resent the double standard, the sexual double standard that occurs by gender, although I also think that it's realistic to acknowledge the ways that it unfortunately makes women and girls vulnerable. And I'm not excusing boys or anyone the obligation to get consent before sex or sexual experimentation. But I also know that, fair or not, the impression a person gives impression a teen girl gives with her booty shorts and very cavalier references to gangbangs. well, it can be a little confusing for a good-hearted ninth grader who's on the receiving end, and it can be perhaps problematically intriguing for a drunken senior at a party. Help, Dan, I really want to talk with her about this. I can't believe that I don't know how to.
1: I would hope that all the adults in your daughter's life aren't so paralyzed by the fear of slut-shaming her that none of you will push back against this shit and be the grown-ups in the room and be the adults and say, knock it the fuck off. You are 14 years old. You are an eighth grader. Uh, It's funny. Just the other day Terry and I were talking – Uh, and telling some friends who have a teenage daughter about our son's age that we are so glad right now that we do not have a teenage daughter uh, our son's age, that we wouldn't want to trade places with them because the landscape is trickier and harder to navigate for teenage girls and their parents than I think it is for teenage boys and their parents. That said, you got to be the parent, and parents can be killjoys, and you can be a killjoy in an appropriately sex-negative way. You can say to her, you're too young for those shorts. Just as we have said to our son, you're too young for that particular rap show. You can push back and say, you know, there's things you don't talk about with your parents. You don't talk about gangbangs with your parents and with your grandparents and in front of your friends. And you're going to scandalize the parents of your peers because many of them aren't as interested in sex as you are or as – fluently conversant about sex as as you are. And there's nothing wrong with having a healthy interest in sex. You're going through puberty and it's natural and you're growing into your body and your body is an amazing thing and you have a right to own it and to move through the world and show off when you want to show off and not show off when you don't want to show off. But you have to accept that at your age, it's going to land wrong. It's going to be misinterpreted. Not just by creepy old teenage boys who might take advantage of her naivete and bravado, which is always a terrible combo, but by your peers who may not be as sexually developed as you are or as sexually curious at their age, at your same age as you are now. you got to push back hard against that. And that's not slut-shaming because what you're laying out implicitly and you should lay it out explicitly actually is that the time will come very soon quickly when this will be more appropriate you know when you will be able to be the person you are more openly with more people and it will not be misinterpreted or received the wrong way but at 14 too soon but look around you know get on fucking instagram Uh, get on her instagram account and look around this is really common uh behavior particularly the dressing particularly the booty shorts particularly the showing off and the that kind of display is really common and a terror for most parents, and you have to react to that in a slightly terrorized way. You have to be the control you have to be the external control because internally she doesn 't have that control right now and' internally and and personally she 's moving out into the world she 's acting out, and you have to set the limits and as a sexually progressive parent, you cannot be paralyzed by the fear of slut shaming your stepdaughter or your daughter in your partner 's case. Uh, So paralyzed by that fear that you just allow this to run unchecked uh, and she may get into dangerous circumstances because someone may misinterpret or actively, intentionally take advantage of her disturbing 14-year-old combo of inexperienced naivete and bravado. Uh, You got to get out in front of it. You got to risk being unpopular with your stepdaughter. You got to fight with her. You got to argue with her. You got to – Externalize what should be an internal conversation in her head right now. Like, should I be wearing this? Should I not be wearing this? I'm going to wear this. Maybe stepmom needs to step in and say, yeah, no, mm, not that, no. That is a short too short. You don't have to blow up. You don't have to scream and yell. You don't have to throw things. You just have to draw her into conversations that will help her to think more critically about the way she's moving through the world. And now, one last sort of detail I want to throw out. You know, a 14-year-old girl and girls mature faster, girls grow taller, girls look more fully developed at a younger age than boys do. Uh, A 14-year-old girl with a bang and bod, your words, not mine, attracts a lot of attention uh, as she moves through the world, Uh, some of it hostile, some of it unwelcome. Some 14-year-old girls will retreat into themselves, will hunch over, will wear hoodies and baggy clothes and hide uh, in reaction to that kind of attention because they're not yet ready for it. Some girls deflect that attention by putting on an aggressive demeanor, by really pushing back hard against it, by going, oh, you like my body? Well, here's my fucking body and it's a strategy. And if you can draw into a conversation about that because maybe some of what she's doing is an aggressive sort of in-your-face, fuck-you reaction to some of the attention that she's getting outside of the house. from people who are not in her family, from not her peers, uh, but from strange men on the street, strange men on buses, uh, older boys in in her social circles or at her schools or at the supermarket or walking down the street. Uh, So you should draw her into conversations about why this aggressive display and recognizing, of course, that this has always been who she is. She's always been sexually precocious. She's always been curious about sex. It's always fascinated her. So this isn't – out of character and it's not a whole new her it's just a much more precarious time of life for this kind of curiosity and precociousness and you need to draw into conversations about that and do not be paralyzed by the fear of slut shaming that is not slut shaming that is gaming shit out that is talking it out that is the opposite of slut shaming that is engaging her about this topic that interests her in an adult and responsible way and you got to get on it
3: Hi Dan, I'm I'm a straight man in my 30s dating a wonderful woman long distance. Uh, She's brilliant, beautiful, GGG. We fight a lot, but we're really trying to make this work. Right now, we live in different cities, and we both travel a lot overseas, so I don't see her for months at a time. I have an insanely high sex drive, which is great when we're together, but it drives me out of my mind when we're apart. I can't seem to concentrate on work, and I get a little depressed when I go without it for more than a month or so. I'm ask her for a pass to date or hook up or uh, get massages or something, and the suggestion makes her really furious. So I'm hoping that in uh, about four to six months, our situation will change so that we're together more often. And if all goes well and we get the fighting under control, I think she could be the .69 that gets rounded up to a one. But the problem is, I don't know if I can survive for the next few months without any kind of sexual outlet. Uh, It seems like uh, it's not that big a price to pay for what could be a really great lifelong relationship, but I worry about the precedent it sets for the future. She's asking me to go without getting my needs met right now while we're still dating because the distance, because the idea of any kind of outside contact is incredibly threatening to her and uh, violates her boundaries. But what I want to know is if we settle down together, does this mean that she may also expect me to suck it up when work, kids, parents, and all life's other drama gets in the way? I know I could make it for a couple of months, but I don't know if I could make it for 40 to 60 years. So anybody you have would be great.
1: I guess I should jump down your throat. A lot of people will be expecting me to jump down your throat, but I kind of don't want to jump down your throat. Uh, You know, I want to play the world's tiniest violin for you at the start. That you have to go three or four more months with not a lot of sexual contact. Well, that's what Skype and flashlights are for. You can jack your way through that. You can. Anybody can. Um, I'm sorry you get depressed but offer it up. Suck it up. That Like I'm a, I'm having a sad because I'm not getting my dick wet at the clip that I am used to. OK, that's fine. But she – if she is that 0.69 that you can round the fuck up to one that you love, that you could picture yourself having a life with and marrying, maybe she's worth that suffering. Maybe she's worth that 40 – Days in the desert. Maybe she's worth it, and you can regard it that way. Go. Oh, I'm so sad. I'm so depressed. But it's for her, and that makes it all better. And where's my flashlight and my porn? That said, however, you know some people would expect me to jump down your throat for what you followed with, which is you know, and then thinking about the future because she won't give me a pass right now. You know, what if we're together and there's a huge dry spell around the arrival of kids or some major life crisis or some other time apart. You know, I think that's legit. I I just can't shrug that off, that concern because I get too many letters from people who are in marriages and have children and in circumstances where extricating themselves uh, would be very difficult if not impossible and cause a lot of trauma to a lot of innocent victims and and perhaps they don't want to extricate themselves or don't want a divorce because they do love their partner but there is this dry spell with no end in sight and there's no hall pass. There's no allowance for going outside uh, for the person who would like to be having sex from the person who for whatever reason is not feeling it and may not feel it for a while or ever again. So I think you should lay that out now. You should put that on the table at the outset. Like, you know, we're not married yet and here we are together and I really love you and I really think we would be together and so, you know, I might like a hall pass because I really need sex. To feel content to, to not be depressed, uh, you know I have a high libido and I, I need this in my life, uh, but for the next four months i 'm going to suck it up i 'm going to suffer for you i 'm going to suffer i 'm going to eat it or not, but you know something I just got to put out there before we make a lifelong commitment to each other before we marry, before we scramble our DNA together, before we have kids of our own is that that 's something I could not endure uh, indefinitely that 's not something that you know if we were together and your libido tanked and you know we had kids, there were some circumstance that pulled us apart for months or years. I would need an accommodation in that circumstance. That's something that you can legitimately put on the table. You, should, you really should put that on the table before you marry, before you have kids. If that's something that you know of yourself, uh, that's something you should acquaint your partner with before you make a lifelong commitment. And you should also say, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot, if for some reason I'm incapacitated and you have a raging libido and I'm not able to meet your needs, you would enjoy that same accommodation, that same allowance, that same pass that I would expect uh, to be given myself from you if the shoes that were now briefly on the other foot were back on the original feet. You know what I mean? (laughs) So… I guess my advice for you is uh, suffer for the next four months. That's not too much sacrifice. It's not too much suffering for true love. The course of true love never did run smooth. But lay out who you are sexually, what you know of yourself, what she needs to know about you. Lay out before you make that lifelong commitment uh, what you know of yourself, that sex is not something that you could go without over the long term. So if you do make a long-term commitment and sex drops out of your marriage, you will stay married, you will be partners, but you will expect – an accommodation.
4: Hi, Dan. I'm a business owner living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I believe I now have two transgendered customers, which has raised some questions for me. Um, first, and this has to do with transgender people in general, not really with my interactions with these customers, I have a question about pronouns. When we talk about transgender people in the present tense, obviously we use the gender that they are today. But, uh, for example, I was sharing a story out of Chaz Bono's book with my husband, and I was confused about how to talk about Chaz Bono as a child. Do I say as a little girl, he was on his parents' television show or she was on her parents' television show because at the time, she he was living as a woman. I was confused. Second, I, is there a way or a need to communicate to a transgendered person that you're an LGBT ally? Would, for example, the male-to-female woman who shops at my business like to know that if she were to share this information, I would continue to be respectful or if, for example, she found herself having anxiety about which restroom to use, I would stand up for her if Anita rose. Or would it be more appropriate to just treat her with the dignity and respect I would show any woman and just ignore her gender? Thank you so much. Have a good day.
1: I think either – when you're talking about Chaz Bono's childhood, I think either formulation could potentially be correct. But pronouns are a minefield and there are people all over the map on the pronouns issue in the trans community. So I'm not going to say whether you should refer to Chaz Bono as a little girl. Back then she was on her parents' television show. I think you would have to say back then when he was a little girl, she he was on – his parents tell you it's a minefield so i'm just gonna let some trans callers call in and say how you should handle that past tense you know but with your clients your customers you really don't have much cause to refer to them in the past tense or discuss their pre-transition life and you really don't need to go out of your way to demonstrate your, your support for them as trans people just treat them like fucking people I, I say this not as a trans person but as a gay guy a gay parent that Sometimes there's really nothing more annoying than the supportive ally going out of their way to demonstrate to you how supportive they are, which is really just a way of them drawing attention to how decent, kind, good and heroic they are because they support your faggery and all that. When somebody pulls me aside just to let me know that they regard my family no differently than anyone else's family, they have at that moment regarded my family very differently than they regard everyone else's families because they don't do that to other people uh, about their family. Just treat me and my husband like a married couple. Don't tell me that you're doing that. If you're doing that, I get it. You're doing that. You don't have to tell me that you did that because what you're asking for at that moment is a bonbon. You're asking for my praise and thanks for you going that extra mile and being a human being when actually that is the default, right? You should default to human being. You don't get a pat on the head because you a human being. It would be like going up to an interracial couple and going, I just want you to know that when you put your black penis in her white vagina, you have my full support. Nobody wants to hear that. Treat an interracial couple like any other couple and they will feel validated and affirmed and comfortable. Pull them aside to tell them you support their black penis, white vagina lifestyle and they're going to feel marginalized, peculiar, uncomfortable. Not with themselves – with you. Uncomfortable with you. When people pull me aside to say, you're faggery, I'm in full support of your faggery, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Not with my faggery. I'm totally comfortable with my faggery. It makes me feel uncomfortable with them because it means when they look at me, it's the first thing they see. Right? They don't see love. They don't see relationship. They don't see commitment. They don't see family. They don't see a couple like any other couple. They see butt fucking. when they look at us. Your trans customers don't want to feel like the first thing that you think when you look at them is not a human being person but – a transition that is in their past. That is the thing that happened and is over and they are now who they are. And You just have to interact with that person and not obsess about a moment in their life when they transitioned. So treat your trans customers like you would treat any other women who come into your shop. Be as courteous and polite to them as you would be to any other women who come into your shop. You don't have to pull them aside and let them know that if they ever need to take a shit in your store, they can shit in the toilet that they identify, blah, blah just don't go there. But uh, trans folks, on the pronoun issue, past tense, pre-transition life, how you want to be referred to, 206-201-2720, which pronouns you want to use, let us know. We'll run some of your comments at the end of the next show.
5: Hi, my name is Jenny. Uh, I'm a straight woman, 42 years old, living in the Southwest. I have been in a relationship with a guy for two years. He describes it as a two-year-long booty call. And I described it as a relationship, and that was the disconnect between the two of us. I called him on his behavior, you know, selfish in bed, selfish everywhere else, which should have been red flag number one, but I let go on and on and on. Um, <laughs> feel like a fool, but I'm just wondering why is it that in a breakup, Between a man and a woman, it's so easy for him to call her a delusional bitch (laughs) when it was, you know, totally different in the bedroom and completely different outside of the bedroom. I'm just a little confused about why it is that uh, it's okay for a man to. Behave that way after a relationship is clearly over, clearly not appropriate. But I'm still a bitch. I'm still delusional because I used the boy the word boyfriend once, and he lit up like a firecracker. Like, oh, you've got you're you're crazy. This is you know we're not in a relationship, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'd appreciate your advice. Uh, a lot of red flags in this situation, and I let it go on, which is my fault. But yeah, just curious about what you might have to say about a guy who's just really emotionally stunted, I guess is the word, and how to avoid this in the future because it's been really shitty.
1: Man, the sex must have been great. If you were ignoring all those red flags that you mentioned more than once, you mentioned the red flags that you turned a blind eye to. But you're doing something now that is a little unfair and it's fine. You've been treated badly by somebody with a dick and you want to lash out at dick havers everywhere. And and that's understandable. But you say, you know, why do men feel like they can behave this way? Why do men do this? Why do men do that? You know, you want me to tell you it's not okay for a man to behave this way. Not all men behave this way. Not all men would regard this as not a relationship. Maybe he didn't feel like your boyfriend, but FWB, friends with benefits, no regular, no-strings-attached uh, hookups, uh, fuck buddies, those are relationships. It's a fuck buddy relationship. It's a friends with benefit relationship. It's a relationship. And you never defined terms, and it sounds like you knew for a while that any attempt to define the terms, any attempt to label this the way you wanted to label it might spook him, and so you didn't for a long time. And then when you finally did, it did spook him and you were right and there were red flags and you ignored them. Um, But this guy isn't all guys and all guys don't behave this way. Why did he behave this way? Because this guy is an asshole and you're well rid of him and you should stop telling yourself that he is – somehow representative or this is how all men behave. Some men behave this way. There are lots of assholes out there. There are lots of delusional bitches out there too. You're not one of them. I don't think you sound like a delusional bitch. You sound perfectly reasonable. It sounds like maybe you deluded yourself a little bit uh, by continuing to see this guy and ignoring the red flags again that you mentioned uh, and and not cutting it off sooner. Uh, But you're no delusional bitch because you thought this two-year ongoing sexual – relationship was indeed a relationship that's not a delusion that's a fact you guys had a relationship he regarded it differently than you regarded it. he rounded it down to some sort of non-relationship status relationship which is bullshit and an asshole move and you applied a perfectly reasonable label to it and he revealed himself in that moment to be the asshole that you had long suspected him to be so how do you avoid this in the future you just trust your gut your gut was screaming oh my god this guy is an asshole but part of you was saying but he's Fucking awesome sex and I'm going to keep dating him and hope that the asshole part burns off or he's not the asshole that I suspect him to be. What you do in future is you just don't risk it with somebody that your gut is telling you is an asshole because in the end, it's going to get ugly and you're going to get hurt again and you go find a guy who wouldn't pull this kind of shit and they're out there because not all guys are assholes just like not all women are delusional bitches just as you are not a delusional bitch.
6: Hey, Dan. This is a 20-year-old uh, college student. A couple of years ago, my sister was sexually assaulted, and um, it's something she's struggling with and uh, trying to deal with. And uh, as a way of, I guess, coping with what happened to her, she, you know, is a very big advocate of, uh, you know, she works with sexually assaulted females. And she gave me a book about, it said, can I, it's called Can I Kiss You? And I went to a lecture by the author, And, uh, basically he says, um, before you like kiss a girl or do anything with a girl, you should always ask as a way of not inadvertently sexually assaulting them. I like to have sex and, you know, it's something like when, when I'm with a girl, I, I ask, you know, I don't necessarily ask, can I kiss you? But I, you know, before I touch her boobs or, you know, go down to her, you know, her vagina or whatever, I say, you know, can I, can I touch you here? Is this okay? And, um, sometimes I find it's kind of a mood killer. And so I was just wondering if there's another way to ask without necessarily asking or killing the mood. um, Or do you think, you know, I should just go for it and, you know, feel her boobs. And if she doesn't like it, you know, if she doesn't like it, she'll just tell me.
1: Excuse me, miss. Might I touch your vagina? Your boobs, your boobs. I was thinking about placing my hand upon your boobs and giving them a squeeze. Um, Here's the thing. Uh, You know... If you lunge at somebody and you touch them and they didn't see that coming and it wasn't how they regarded you, they, they didn't think that it was a date. They didn't think that that you know that's not welcome. That's assault, right? Uh, you may think that it's happening, that there's something about her body language or how you're interacting that invites it and you know it's going there and you don't want to, you know kill the mood by, by obtaining her explicit and unambiguous consent in the moment. But what really is going to fuck the mood up is if she punches you or calls the cops or uh, gets really angry because that was unexpected and unwelcome and therefore then is assault. Uh, So I do think in a new relationship, when you're dating somebody or hooking up at a party or whatever is going on, someone you do not know that it is wise in the extreme to err on the side of obtaining explicit and unambiguous consent. And you can do that without killing the mood. Uh, you, you don't have to say, "May I please place my hand upon your breast." It doesn't have to be that awful, you know. If you look at somebody and there's that smoldering moment when, in the movies, somebody's going to get a little closer and lean in for the kiss. If you look at somebody, and I don't want to get all porny voiced here because it's going to make everybody out there throw up, including all the Texas youth who are all filing out of the room right now because Grandpa Dan is going to try to say something in a sex voice. But if you look at somebody at that moment, you know, that in movies they show, you know, both people realizing they're about to kiss and then they go for it. If you look at somebody in that smoldering moment and you just say, I really want to kiss you, you can say it sexy, sorry guys. You can say it sexy and keep the mood going and and then obtain that consent. Because in that moment, if you can say it fucking sexy, she'll probably, if she wants to be kissed, say, God, look, do it. Fucking kiss me. Or I really want to kiss you too. And then you go for it. And then before things escalate, you can roll out similar statements. Just – you have an inner monologue in your head that's saying, I really want to touch your boob and you can verbalize that. I really want to put my hands on you. And then if she says, put your fucking hands on me, she may grab your hand and place them on her where they need to go. Uh, however, you know all that said, in the context of an established relationship, if you're dating somebody and I get in trouble when I say this, uh, but there exists a kind of – implicit consent. I do not have to when I want to touch my husband say, may I please place my hand upon your buttocks? Uh, I have Terry's implicit permission, his sort of uh, you know, implicit consent to grab at him when I feel like it and if he doesn't want to be grabbed at at that moment, he will let me know and I will knock it the fuck off and he likewise enjoys the same sort of implied consent. Our relationship exists in that sort of implied consent zone. But that's long-term. That's when you really know somebody well. I know when Terry doesn't want to be touched. I can read his – I know when 99 percent of the time I'm right. When he does, when he is not into it, it is evident and I stay the fuck away from him because he's scaring a German. So once you're in that long-term relationship, you don't have to keep asking. You don't have to like roll out that sexy voice and ask. But initially – Particularly if you're a young man in college, you do want to err on the side of explicit, unambiguous, verbalized consent. And if you're a young woman, you also want to err on the side of explicit, verbalized consent, unambiguous Ambiguity is the engine that creates so much ill will, misunderstanding, uh, people who wind up feeling violated and for them it was experiences rape and other people who say, you know, you wanted to, you never said and that's just you're, – you're just rounding regret up to rape. All that shit can be avoided with explicit, unambiguous, verbalized consent. I got a letter actually from uh, somebody in the army who is going through a training about just this sort of thing, about consent and how you obtain it and and the sex talk. And a lieutenant was leading this and really not doing very well. Uh, and I'm just going to read a little bit of this letter because I'm proud of this. He credits me uh, at the beginning of the letter with his having the language, having the language skills, having the, the words he needed to – words that are failing me now obviously – he Credits me in a letter for him being able to verbalize this, but uh, I'm just to read you a few paragraphs, I waited till the lieutenant was done with his half hearted presentation and he asked her questions. I grew a pair and asked if I could step in. He was glad to be relieved uh, for a minute. I stood up in front of the guys, none of whom know i 'm gay by the way, and talked to them for twenty minutes about sex, about consent, about alcohol, about using dirty talk to make sure your partner is consenting to what is going on. I challenged them, and that 's what i 'm talking about using dirty talk like I want to fuck you, I want to touch you. Here's what he said to this room full of uh, soldiers who were getting a lecture about consent uh, and obtaining it from their sex partners, particularly their brand new ones. Guys, you motherfuckers have been talking about sex nonstop for three goddamn weeks while we've been in the field. But now, as soon as a woman enters the room, as soon as you're almost there, you're all going to be a bunch of chicken shits. You're not going to have the intestinal fortitude or the guts to do the right thing and keep talking about sex. But you want to know a truly dirty secret? you want a woman to do truly dirty, nasty things with you? You know how to make that happen? I know at least a couple of you are goddamn clueless, so listen up. Ask her what she wants. It blew their minds, he continues. We were able to have an active discussion and some good laughs, and they came away so much the better for it. For the rest of the day, I had guys approaching me, thanking me, and wondering if I'd be willing to talk to them about sex privately, blah, blah, blah. You guys never shut up about sex. Blah, blah, blah. Guys talk about sex all the time, fantasize about it, bullshit about it with their friends. You're with a woman. Sex might be about to happen and suddenly you can't talk about sex. Suddenly you can't ask a question. Bullshit. Keep talking about sex. The problem for a lot of people around this, around obtaining consent is – You have it in your heads because you've seen it in the movies and you've seen it on television and you've read it in stupid books and it happens in porn. That sex just kind of happens. It kind of breaks out. It happens naturally. The mood, the moment, and it just – the physical takes over and nobody has to talk about it. And talking about sex for a lot of people can be difficult. That's bullshit. Sex does not just happen. It's not a thunderstorm. It just doesn't break out. You got to make it happen. And to make it happen, you got to ask for it. You have to be able to talk about it. And it's only a mood killer if you talk about it in an awkward, stupid, off-putting way. It is a mood enhancer if you talk about it in a sexy, empowering, inviting way where you're asking that person that you'd like to touch, that you'd like to kiss, that you'd like to fuck for their permission by, by drawing them out about what they want, by informing them about what you want, by asking for what you want and then asking them in turn what they want. And you can do that in a way that is arousing. You can do that in a way that enhances the sex. It does not have to be a mood killer. It is only a mood killer if you think sex is lightning that's going to hit you. It isn't. You have to make it happen and to make it happen, you have to talk someone into it. Obtain consent, verbalized, unambiguous and explicit in the moment and do it not with creepy – I would like to kiss you if I may voice, but I really want to fucking kiss you. Sexy voice. Sorry, tech savvy at risk youth for that. We will all go bleach our brains now and come back in a moment to have another call.
7: Hi, Dan. I'm a 33-year-old straight male who's been dating a 29-year-old straight female for the last few months. Our relationship is very positive and loving for the most part, yet there's one aspect about her that I really have a difficult time with. In fact, I've never liked this about the women that I've dated in any of my committed relationships, her need to keep in contact with ex-boyfriends, specifically two exes, mainly via text message, but she also exchanges pleasantries with them via Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, etc. So they're always indirectly, at least because of social media feeds, keeping track of each other's lives. She tells me that their conversations are nothing substantive, just, hey, how are you doing type of exchanges, which leads me to then ask why she wants these other men left lingering in her life at all. I mean, if there's no substantial connection, why keep that window to them open and allow them a window into her life? I suppose my reason for not liking this is I really want to be the only guy she talks to currently with whom she has ever been sexually intimate. When I say this to her, she rationally, although wrongly, concludes that I have a fear she will once again meet up with either of these two men and fuck them. But that has never been a concern of mine. I trust her that she firmly wants monogamy, as do I. My problem with her talking to these men is that I believe an emotional connection with another person to be a lot more invasive and substantial than merely a physical one. And I believe her need to keep talking to them is more substantive than she lets on. So it really bothers me that she wants to remain friends with these two ex-boyfriends. As a reasonably intelligent guy, of course, understand that the far more enlightened view on this topic is that people come into our lives, we become romantically and physically intimate with some of them, the romance falters and the relationships transform or sort of downgrade into friendships or being that of mere acquaintances. I get that. I even understand that liking, I can understand liking a person enough to want to remain connected to him or her after the romance is gone. But that logic still doesn't stop it from making my skin crawl when I see her texting these men on her phone. Her major her major reasoning for not being able to make the sacrifice of giving up her distant friendships with these two men, these two ex-boyfriends, is that nobody likes her enough to be her friend, and that because her friendships are so limited, she has no one else with whom to share common interests. I have asked her if she would, therefore, make two, if she could make two other friends to replace these guys, if she would then stop talking to the ex-boyfriends. She says she would, but again, that no one will ever like her enough to be her friend. Me, I have no other friends in life, and I'm very much a loner, so she naturally thinks that I have a desire for her to be exactly like me. That's not true. She has other friends, both male and female, with whom she has never had a sexually intimate relationship. I am perfectly fine with her having these friendships as I recognize how potentially unhealthy and precarious it is to attempt to get all of one's companionship needs from just one person. That is what I want for myself, but I have never expected my partner to be that same way. I just wish she could value my wishes above above needing to keep contact over with two men, at least one of whom who had treated her fairly poorly at one time, according to her. I just can't wrap my mind around people that want to keep in contact with exes above the wishes of a current partner who has a problem with it for any reason, basically.
1: You're all familiar with my solution to the porn problem, right? The, you know, the, typically, I don't want to gender this, but typically, Invariably, The wife or the girlfriend hates porn. The boyfriend or the husband watches porn. There's all this conflict and you know, attempt to regulate and police promises I'll stop. Evidence discovered. The blow up. The letter to me. The call. Uh, and, and the only solution to that conflict is men are going to look at porn. Period. The end. A lot of women look at porn too but men all look at porn. The only solution to the porn conflict is he pretends not to look at porn. You pretend to believe him. Ladies, that's the solution and he goes – He's considerate enough to cover his tracks, to hide it from you as best he can and if he successfully hides it from you almost all of the time, if he's really good at covering his tracks, the once or twice in a great while when you uncover evidence uh, of his porn use, you repay his consideration with consideration of your own. You turn a blind eye those one or two times when he forgets to close the web browser or whatever the fuck it is. Otherwise, you're just – Putting conflict at the heart of your relationship that is going to ultimately explode it and you just have to accommodate each other's porn use for the guys and porn craziness for the other partner, almost invariably um, (laughs) a woman. Sorry. You guys need to adapt the porn solution to this problem. As you articulate so well, this is bullshit and this is – Uh, unfair and irrational and your desire to be the only man that she's ever been sexually intimate with, with whom she has an emotional connection is unfair and arbitrary and stupid and unenforceable and so you're not going to be the crazy lady freaking out about porn in this situation. What you're going to do is you're going to say, I realize you're going to be friends with these two guys, these exes, and I'm going to try, I'm going to work on not being an insecure bag of slop and so you know, But maybe because I am a little insecure about it and you know that we can work around that by you pretend not to talk to them and I pretend to believe you. So you know, don't text them when I'm sitting at dinner with you because that is just going to tweak my like freaky, irrational bullshit insecurities about it, OK? And if I sometimes catch you doing it or I go and look at your Instagram feed and you had a brief interaction with one of them, I will repay your consideration. That you're showing me by not doing it in front of me and all the time. I will repay your consideration at those moments when I stumble over it by not blowing up about it, not having a meltdown, not even saying anything to you about it. And there you will have a workable compromise, a workable solution that allows her to have these guys in her life in this really minor way and accommodates your insecurities. And, And then she demonstrates her concern for your insecurities by accommodating them. By keeping it to a minimum and not doing it in front of you makes you feel important and loved and and cared for without her having to pretend that she's not going to be in touch with these guys because she's going to be in touch with these guys in the same way that every husband and boyfriend in America is going to jerk it to porn every once in a while. This comes up a lot, this desire to have a partner throw love letters away, destroy old pictures, never be in contact with exes, which can get really complicated when exes have children with their exes. And people need to get past it. It is a sign of insecurity, uh, emotional immaturity, bullshit, controlling, jealous, horseshitty red flags that should send someone running. It's bullshit. She's choosing to be with you or he's choosing to be with you. You're the one right now. There have been other ones in the past. They're part of your partner's history, part of their life. And you just can't ask somebody to stuff old boyfriends, old girlfriends, ex-husbands, ex-wives who they like. With whom they still have some rapport and feel some affection for to stuff those people down the memory hole because you're an insecure bag of slop.
2: Hi, I am 20 years old and I have been seeing somebody, a guy, for the past two and a half years. It's, at times going really well, but the big divide in our relationship is for just personal reasons. I don't drink, I never have, or done drugs. And he's a recreational user of cocaine and ecstasy. And it's, um, When we're together and on our own, it's great. But when he's with a certain group of friends, they go out maybe like once or twice a month. And I know that he's doing cocaine and it really bothers me because outside of that, he is a really great guy. And it's off and on because every time things go well, then there's that Saturday night where I know he's out doing blow with his friends. And some of my friends say that it's awful. I should be them. Um and then other people are like that's just what people do for fun to blow off steam. He's thirty three and it's hard to think about moving forward long term because I don't wanna, you know, settle down and have kids with somebody who I'm worried is going out and, and doing cocaine, he's on a coquette or anything. As far as I know, like that it's you know, two or three times a month but it's still it still really bugs me and I don't even and I get kind of put in this corner because I've never drank, I've never been high. So I feel like I'm never going to be able to figure that situation. He's been awesome. He's always been there whenever I need him. And he cares a lot about me. I care a lot about him. But this cocaine thing is getting in the way. And I kind of feel like it's more important to him than me. So nobody's been able to give me a straight answer on how I can resolve this. I've talked to him about it. But um, he just says it's just something that people do every once in a while. And we live in a major metropolitan city in Canada. So... Uh, if you have any suggestions, I would really, really appreciate it
8: because uh, I
1: don't know how to deal with this. <laughs> I did notice the last time I was in a major metropolitan city in Canada that there were just piles of blow everywhere on the streets. You couldn't avoid it and ecstasy dispensers and drug stores. Not all recreational drug use is recreational drug abuse. It sounds like he has a perfectly fine relationship to ecstasy and cocaine. Uh, once or twice a month is a bit more than I would use recreational drugs, um, but he's – 33. He may be at the tail end of this kind of partying once or twice a month. It is the sort of thing that tends to peter out after the late 20s, early 30s uh, and become less prevalent or less dominant in someone's social life over time as people get married, settle down, have kids. There's less time for this shit. But you're making a problem out of something that doesn't really sound like a problem in every way. You describe this guy. He is responsible. He is there for you. He is loving. He is committed. He's never failed you, I can only assume that if these ecstasy and coke sessions led to benders that left him incapacitated for days or caused him to miss work or be violent or unhappy or grumpy or shitty or a lousy partner, that you would have included those details, right? So it's not having any of that kind of impact on him. It sounds like his drug use is in no way fucking up his life or or harming your relationship. So I don't think he should have to cater to your irrational fears of drug use and what it represents somehow symbolically. If the occasional drug use is not a problem in his life, I don't understand why you need to round it up to a problem in your relationship. Because it may cost you this wonderful loving guy and you could wind up with an emotionally insecure, controlling, shitty, straight edge monster – who doesn't meet your needs, with whom you are unhappy, but you're completely on the same page on the drug issue. Is that what you want? Would you trade him in for that guy or are you willing to tolerate and accept a little bit of drug use once or twice a month in exchange for everything else he brings to the table? You've been with him for two and a half years. That hasn't ramped up, not addicted. Sounds like he could take it or leave it, something he does recreationally with friends. He's not snorting blow off the back of the toilet in your apartment or off the back of your ass before he fucks you. You're framing this as a choice, that he's choosing Coke over you. But you're imposing that choice and it's a false choice. Why should he have to choose Coke or you? It sounds like right now he's capable of having both. And you can have Coke and him or not him. And it sounds crazy to, you know, if you lay down the law and say this stops or our relationship is over, he may say, okay, our relationship is over. Not because he loves Coke more than you, but just because he doesn't want to be with someone who's going to play that kind of game with him, with something that's clearly not a problem in his life. He doesn't want to establish a precedent where you can press that button and control him in that way because right now it's Coke or me and what else is it going to be or me later? So the choice you're presenting to him, you may regard it as Coke or me and he may regard it as crazy, controlling girlfriend who's making a problem out of something that is not a problem in my life or somebody else who may be a bit more realistic and rational about my recreational drug use. Do you really want to force this wonderful, loving guy who meets your needs and is there for you and has never failed you to make that kind of choice? Do you really want to force that guy To make a choice not between Coke and you, but freedom, autonomy, respect, and you? Because let me tell you, the odds are good that he will choose freedom, autonomy, and respect, if that's the choice. That's the choice I would make.
8: Hi, Dan. My husband of nearly 10 years told me he thinks he might be amorous, and I'm having a really hard time dealing with it. I'd like some advice. He has some kinks which I don't share. I tried to explore them with him years ago when he first told me, but it traumatized me, so we had to take that off the table. He wants to explore these kinks through reading forums, chatting, and role-playing with others. That I'm mostly okay with, but down the road he feels he could develop other intimate relationships, and that scares me. We had an awesome marriage and we complement each other beautifully in most respects. We've achieved a lot of our dreams together. We are a little mismatched sexually. I have a naturally low libido and have struggled with depression and anxiety my whole life, which kills my sex drive either through misery or antidepressants. We've tried all kinds of things to close the gap without much success. We're poor and don't have health insurance, so we can't afford sex therapy. He acknowledged that if I shared his kinks, he might not feel the need to explore them with other people. I've always agreed with you when you've advised a couple that can't meet each other's needs to seek that outside the relationship. But I can't seem to apply it to my own marriage without feeling like my heart is breaking. I'm afraid that once we open this door, he will find someone who's a better match than I am. And no matter how much he says he will never leave me, I don't believe him. I grew up in a home where I was always made to feel ashamed of my depression and my body. So learning to trust him took years. Now that trust feels broken. I don't want to feel this way. I would never have guessed that this would hurt so much. I have poly and kinky friends. I consider myself open-minded, and I don't believe that monogamy is for everyone, but it definitely is right for me. I thought it was right for him, too. I don't want to be in a polyamorous relationship, but I also don't want to deny him a part of his sexual identity and creativity. And I don't want to lose him. I love him so much, and he's always been so good to me. I want to be good to him, too, but I can't believe how scared and hurt I am. Please
1: help. My heart really breaks for you. Uh, I want to say that before I say the rather blunt thing I'm about to say, you're definitely going to lose him. If you don't let him do this, you might lose him. If you do let him explore his kinks with other people, other people with whom he feels he may develop some sort of emotional attachment. Uh, he is clearly, uh, no longer willing to forego forever, uh, this side of his sexuality, uh, He's no, willing, he's no longer willing to sacrifice that on the altar of your marriage and and this relationship and I'm sorry and that is horrible and painful uh, and it, the pain is right there in your voice and, and I ache for you. I got to say though that the only way to resolve your fears, the only way to, to have your fears laid to rest is to let him do it and see that he doesn't leave you. For him to explore these things with other people with whom he may or may not – form some sort of emotional bond. He can think he's polyamorous until the end of time. It doesn't mean that anyone else is going to want to be in a relationship with him necessarily uh, or any sort of ongoing relationship with him. Um, And and for him to do this and and explore it and scratch this itch outside your marriage, these things that – these kinks that you cannot explore with him without being emotionally traumatized uh, and then not go anywhere, that is the proof. That That is what you need to see. That that is the only way to resolve your fears around him leaving. Uh, you know he could also just not do this, but the only way to compel him to not do it is to tell him that you will leave him if he does do it. It's a horrible situation, right? It's like two people are both standing out on the side of the room, pointing a gun at each other. Neither one wants to die, and neither one wants to kill each other. But, but there you are. He'll leave you. He'll end this marriage if he doesn't get to do this. Your only retort to that is I'll leave you if you do do this. Awful. It's awful. I would encourage you to spend more time with your poly and kinky friends. I would encourage you to perhaps go to some kink events with him. So many people in various kink scenes, and you don't mention which one it is in particular that he's into or interested in, so many long-term established loving couples, some of whom are monogamously mixed-matched, some of whom one partner plays with others and the other doesn't and doesn't want to. Uh, are are happy and content and and exist in that world. And it may help you see your way clear to a future for you and your husband where his needs are met and yet you are safe and loved and not abandoned. If you spend some time with other couples, uh, we're in the position that you guys are in now and in a better place now. Most people in my position, most sex advisors, everyone in the advice industrial complex would turn this into a problem uh, that your husband, he should just do without. He should just not do this. He should never – whatever the kinks are, whatever it is he wants to do that's inspiring him to be polyamorous, uh, that you know, he should man up and not do. And I could say that. There I said it all. He shouldn't do it. He should – for the good of your marriage, for your emotional security, he should just not do these things. But I know people – I, I get too many letters. I, 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 I see the wreckage. I pick through the wreckage. I comb through it every day. That's my job. People will destroy marriages. They will break up homes. They will traumatize their children uh, because sex is just too overwhelming a desire. It's too important and rather than me being unrealistic and saying, oh, he should go without and just kick the can down the road maybe six months or a couple of years before he explodes your marriage to get these needs met, I think it's better for people to make an accommodation, to work something out. Uh because that's the only way the relationship is going to survive. It just makes me think of this quote from Mark Twain's essay, uh, Letters from the Earth, where Lucifer is writing to the angels in heaven and talking about what a fucking mess man is. And he's talking about what a fucking mess our heaven is. Human beings like the immortals naturally play sexual intercourse far and away above all other joys, yet he has left it out of his heaven. In heaven we don't fuck, Twain points out, we pray endlessly. No fucking praying. Even though we hate church, nobody wants to go and people sitting in churches are just waiting for it to be over. But the heaven we imagine for ourselves is church everlasting. But back to sex, Twain says, the very thought of sex excites him. Opportunity sets him wild. In this state, he will risk life, reputation, everything. In a frustrated – and now this is me. In a frustrated, aroused state, your husband will risk your marriage he's going to do this. I, I feel terrible saying that to you, particularly when you sound so vulnerable and upset and you have a history of depression. And mm, mm, mm. But your ultimate goal, you say, is that you want to be with him. You do not want your marriage to end. And knowing what I know and seeing what I've seen of human beings, the marriage will end. if There isn't a way for him to get these needs met and maybe the compromise because the poly thing is what freaks you out uh, is no relationships with uh, the other people with whom he explores the, this aspect of sexuality, at least at the outset you're more comfortable. With it. until some time has passed and you've seen that he can do these things with other people and he isn't going to leave you. Till so that fear is resolved when you've got the proof there in the pudding that he can do this, he can be sexual with other people and it's not going to pull him away from you. Or undermine his commitment to you in any way. And again, I would urge you to go to some kink events and meet some couples. You go to some kink events and you meet people where one partner is insanely kinky and doing everything and the other partner is just kind of smiling and nodding and rolling their eyes inside until the event is over. Because it's not their thing but they don't want their partner. They're on chaperone necessarily. That's how you save your marriage. That's what you say. You want to save your marriage. This is how you save your marriage.
9: Hi Dan. I am a 30-year-old, a heteroflexible male and a wonderful, um, I guess you would call it a polyamorous triad. Um, my wife and I have a boyfriend who I love dearly. Um, my question is, he has HPV. And um my wife, she got the vaccine years ago as soon as it came out. The only reason he knows he has HPV is that two of his previous partners didn't have it and then had it after being with him. So he assumes, of course, there's no test for males, which is frustrating. So after hearing your show with the interview, um, I forget the doctor's name, where you talked about male risk for HPV and throat cancer, um, this really triggered me. My my dad had throat cancer, so it's something that I'm acutely aware of, and my problem is I want to suck his dick. I love him, and I, I really want to be more intimate with him, but I have this block about it, and I... I've tried to get the vaccine, but being 30 is really hard. I don't know why I can't get this fucking shot. So, yeah, my question is, what is really my risk here? And um, what steps should I take to mitigate it? And why can't I get this vaccine? Can I just get the vaccine? Is that a thing?
1: If you want to suck the guy's dick, suck the guy's dick. You had a flexible 30-year-old male in a polyamorous relationship. He's having sex with your partner. And so if he is, you know, the typhoid Mary of HPV, you are being bank shot exposed via your partner. It's too late. And if you're a sexually active 30-year-old male and you had more than a handful of partners, you have already been exposed to HPV, which is why a lot of places will not vaccinate sexually active adults against HPV. Some will. You just go out there and demand vaccination. I don't know why considering that you would have to pay for it and pay out the nose. Anyone would – Prevent you from uh, obtaining it. Doctors may feel it's irrelevant, it wouldn't help you, it'd be a waste, but you could certainly be vaccinated if it would make you feel better. But it's really a waste of your time, a waste of your money, and a waste of one, two, or three doses of that vaccine. 30 year old heteroflexible male whose partner is active with and probably sucking the dick of someone who has perhaps, maybe. Uh, spread HPV in the past. HPV also is cleared from the body over time in most cases. So he may have had HPV in the past and it's already cleared his system and he's got an HPV-free dick but then he recontracted HPV from you because you already had it because you were exposed in prior relationships. It's just avoiding HPV uh, when you're a sexually active adult with more than one partner and you were not a virgin when you married the partner that you are with and your partner was not a virgin is – Almost impossible. So monitor yourself for signs of oral cancers, put good oral hygiene, go to the doctor, get regular health checkups, get tested for STIs. Your female partner, the lady you two guys share so amicably, uh, should be getting her pap smears and her vag checked out regularly. I'm sure you guys are doing all that already. And go ahead and suck his fucking dick because if he has HPV, You do too at this point. And if he doesn't have HPV, he might have gotten it again from you or it might have cleared all your systems. And if the three of you together are sexually exclusive, it's a closed triad, you could all clear the HPV virus and all of you be fine and HPV-free in 12 or 24 months. And those two women who got HPV after sleeping with him might have gotten it from someone else. It can take sometimes years after exposure for symptoms to appear. So there really is just no way to know for certain Whether he has HPV, whether he gave those women HPV, whether you already currently have been exposed to HPV. So I would err on the side in a circumstance like this of the pleasures and intimacy of sucking the dude's dick over the very small chance of contracting a sexually transmitted infection that most people are already exposed to and that is in most people's lives not that big a fucking deal.
2: Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old married female in an open, poly-monogamish relationship. Um, Recently, I was talking with one of my friends, and I told her that I had never gotten off on clitoral stimulation. Um, I've been with a handful of men, um, more than five, less than 10, from all skill levels, from virgins to marines. And I've had plenty of mind-blowing and body-blowing orgasms. My friend asked if I had ever had an orgasm from self masturbation and I told her, no, that I haven't. I can get myself to an okay point, but I haven't been able to get myself all the way off. Kind of like ordering the chicken when you really wanted the steak. You're full, but you're not really satisfied. Uh, Because of these two factors, my friend has declared that I've never really had an orgasm, and I'm kind of calling bullshit. I've had the tingles and the shakes and see the moon and the stars and all that cheesy shit you want to compare orgasms to. Um, I've tried clit stimulation with my fingers and with my vibrators and I just don't really enjoy it. It's it's almost like it's too intense to where it's not enjoyable and I haven't been able to find a middle ground um, either with myself or with a man. My G-spot really is inside of me, and sex is amazing uh, with my husband and with my lovers. Um, I've never had a problem getting off during sex. Um, but now I kind of can't help but wonder, have I never had a real orgasm because it's not, you know, coming from my clit? It's coming from inside of me. Um, and, and, you know, is there anything I can maybe do to get this itchy little clit of mine into better shape for sex or masturbating or what
1: have you? The orgasms are coming from inside the vagina. Reminds me of that horror movie. Ooh, calls are coming from inside the building. Listen, uh, here's a funny thing. When I first started writing Savage Love 22 years ago, I didn't know where the clit was and I, and I made mistakes. I didn't know much about women's genitalia. And what kind of idiot gives a sex advice column to some – for straight people to this – to a fag who doesn't know where the clit is? Um, Tim Keck actually, that kind of idiot, the publisher of The Stranger, uh, he's the exactly the kind of idiot who would give a sex advice column to straight people to a gay guy who doesn't know where the clit is. And I, you know – I may have said that the clit is a joy buzzer at the top of the vaginal canal. I may have said a couple other things. I definitely once said that female genitalia resemble a canned ham drop from a great height, which some people have a problem with. But I actually think – you know, I was people said that that was gynophobic of me. I was called a gynophobic little cocksucker by someone uh, in the column for describing women's genitalia as a canned ham drop from a great height. I actually think that's really accurate because – what will happen if you drop a canned ham from a great height, from like the top of a skyscraper, is when the can hits the sidewalk, the force of the fall will compress the can and the can – one of the seams will split. And then the the meat, as the can is compressed by the, the force of the fall, the meat will be forced out through the split seam and, and form a roughly symmetrical pink meat flower, kind of there for resembling female genitalia. And I was comparing – female genitalia with that analogy, to something I would put in my mouth. I think if I was really gynophobic, if I really didn't, you know, wanted to make pussy sound awful, I wouldn't compare it to something I wouldn't eat. I won't eat pussy. I will eat ham. I'll eat a whole fucking canned ham in a sitting. If I was really gynophobic, I would have compared pussy to something inedible and disgusting like liver or lavender creme brulee. Anyway, Where was I going? Oh, uh, I didn't know where the clip was. I didn't really know anything about women's bodies or how their genitals worked or how they came in. But yet I was writing about it. It didn't stop me from running my mouth because I'm a dude, right? And uh, people had to correct me and I had to learn. And and I point out actually in my new book that I know more now than many women do about female genitalia. And that's kind of fucked up. Adult, polyamorous. Sexually progressive women will call my show and ask me questions and betray an ignorance of their own genitalia that makes my head explode. How do you not know this? You say you're not coming from your clit. You are. You say you can't – it can't be a clitoral orgasm because it's happening inside. Most of your clit is inside your body. The clitoris, what we call the clit – the exposed part of your clit, what you can see on the outside and diddle with, that's just the glands. You have a clitoral shaft, clitoral wings they're called. Uh you have all this clitoral tissue that anchors the head of your clitoris, your lady penis, to your body and it spreads out back through you. And so when you're getting fucked, you know, and there are women out there who don't really get anything you know, from clitoral stimulation, direct gland stimulation. But when you're getting fucked, enough of your clit is getting stimulated. The shaft of your clit, all this other clitoral tissue is getting banged around by whatever in your vagina and it's hitting your G-spot too and that's what's getting you off. There's nothing broken about you. There's nothing deficient or inadequate about your orgasms. You are having orgasms. You just require the clitoral tissues that are internal to be stimulated in order for you to climax, but you are climaxing. Don't fucking pathologize yourself about this. Don't make this a problem. It's not a problem. Everything is working fine. The orgasms are coming from inside your vagina where most of your clit is. Get it? That's how it works. There are some guys with their dicks because a dick is just a a great big fucking clit and a clit – all of it together is just a dissected dick, right? There are some guys who you can't really touch the head of their dick. It doesn't really do much for them. Stroke the shaft, play with their balls, touch their taint and they're getting there. That for them, you know, the nerve endings that really click into their brains are not in the head of their penis. Some guys, it's all got to be up toward the top, really hard, rapid, rough stimulation up toward the top on the glance for them to, to, to get off, to ejaculate. But not all guys and you're just like one of those guys who prefers – requires more shaft stimulation because what's being stimulated when you get fucked, when you, your pussy inside is engaged is your clitoral shaft or the wings. All those erectile tissues that – a dude are outside the body but on you, they're inside the body and on your vagina, near, along the vaginal walls, not in your vagina. Don't want to get it wrong again. And we can't also discount the importance of the subjective turn on. Some people need the brain engaged and there might be part of your erotic imagination and your erotic inner life wired heavily between your twat and your brain that engages when you're getting fucked. That just doesn't engage. It just doesn't do it for you. It's not enough mental stimulation when you're using a vibrator or diddling yourself but there's this – You know, everything you associate with the act of being penetrated with somebody fucking you that pushes you over the falls, that does it for you. The combo of that clitoral stimulation of your shaft on the inside of your body and the, oh, my God, I'm getting fucked and he's so sexy and this is so hot. and That's what gets you over the top plus the G-spot. But you're working. You're working fine. And you tell your friend who's trying to make you feel bad about the orgasms you're having because they're not the orgasms that she has or you have them differently than she has them to go fuck herself. Cause you've got a date to go get fucked by somebody else. It's going to get you off and make you come because everything works just fine.
2: Hi, Dan savage. So I have a question for you, but I was hoping that you could clear up. I was wondering what the correct etiquette would be for a one night stand or, you know, like newly hooking up with a person. If you have sex with them and you don't really know them that well, are you supposed to stay over? I don't really like to stay over at other people's houses until I know them and sleep in bed with them. I have no problem having sex with them. If I don't know them, that's fine. But I was just wondering if you're supposed to stay over at their house after you have sex with them. I keep finding myself in situations where I'm expected to stay over, but I always end up bouncing because I would just much rather go home to my own bed and sleep there comfortably until I get to know them better. So anyways, that's my question for you, hoping that you could clear up slutty
4: etiquette for me.
1: The thing about hooking up and and slutting around in the sex-positive sense of the word slutting is that that nobody can impose expectations on you or or make demands. If you don't want to wake up in a stranger's bed the next morning, you just say that, put that out there, and go – you don't have to make apologies. It's not about expectation. That person might prefer for you to sleep over. You, an autonomous and free individual, prefer not to sleep over so you will not sleep over Now, some people may read rejection into that or dissatisfaction. Somebody who would prefer a one-night stand, spend the night, maybe fuck again in the morning and have breakfast, Uh, if you jump and leave, if you bounce, they may go, oh, must have had a terrible time. And maybe you did have a terrible time and maybe you didn't. You want to bounce anyway. So you just need to qualify the I'm not staying the night with that was great. That was awesome. I really had fun. You might even want to say it in advance when they invite you back. Like, yeah, I'd love to come back and let's do this. But – I'm going to have to take off after because I got to wake up in my own bed. I got to go to work. I got to do this. I got to do that or I just prefer to sleep in my own bed. Uh, And then you're in the clear. Then you've been considerate. Then you've been kind. Yeah, that's really the only free radical element you have to control for is that other person whose feelings you don't want to hurt even if the sex wasn't that great. You don't want to hurt their feelings fortuitously. They may interpret your desire to leave for disgust or dissatisfaction and so just tell them. Straight up, just talk, say it. That was great, but I really prefer to wake up in my own bed. I hope to see you again. That was really fun. Here's my number. Bye. And you know what? 50% or more of the time, they really don't want you to sleep over. They're glad to see you go. They would rather wake up alone in their bed in the morning and be able to fart once you take off.
2: Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old heterosexual female from Los Angeles. And I've been having regular sex with this guy for the past six months or so. We have a pretty good sexual relationship. He's very giving and we both always reach orgasm every time, which is great. But uh, about 20 minutes after we have sex the first time, he always likes to jerk off again while he watches me lick his nipple. And I, I, I know that he is coming the first time we have sex because he usually ejaculates my mouth or my tits. And, like, I'm totally okay with helping him masturbate, but it's, like, every time after we have sex. And I really don't like doing it all the time. I really want to be a giving sexual partner, and I don't want to, like, shame him in any way by telling him I don't want to do this. How do I tell him that I don't want to lick his nipple while he masturbates every time? And honestly, the nipple play thing kind of makes me feel weird. I don't know why, but it does. Um, Are we not sexually compatible? Because I'm not into it. I don't know how to tell him.
1: This is going to be a little difficult for you to finesse just because it's been going on for six months and – If you just bust out with this really grosses me out, this like nipple licking jack off after it's all over thing, he's going to be retroactively mortified about all the times that he put you through that and feel like all those times when he thought it was intimate and fun and loving and kind of sexy and he was jerking it and you were licking his nipples up and down. To find out after all of that that you were rolling your eyes and dying inside may hurt his Fifi's just a bit. Uh, so you're going to have to roll this out carefully. But, you know, if you don't want to do this, I think you have a right to say that this is something you're not into. And rather than – your nipples are gross and I don't want to lick them. Uh, to roll this out, is this is a little tedious. This is a little monotonous. Presumably every time you guys fuck, it isn't in the same position, in the same way, at the same time, in the same place with the same props and costumes that you guys mix it up so that it always lands at the end at this one particular place where you're expected after it's all over and he's come and you've come, he's suddenly aroused again and you're supposed to nurse that I would plead tedium as opposed to disgust with all the, you know, instead of saying it has grossed me out all along for six months, I've been rolling my eyes and hating your tits. Just say, you know what? Uh, we we got to break this pattern because I'm getting a, a little bored. This is a little tedious, and and maybe this is an established thing with him where you know he comes and then he gets hard again, and he can't go to bed. He can't think unless he jacks it one more time. And for some guys, a little nipple play helps him come sooner. Maybe he thinks he's being courteous, saying you know, lick my tits, and let me jerk off, and it'll be over really fast. So if you just throw that out there, I'm a little bored with this with the little capstone to our sexual activities, a little bored with it. Maybe you guys can mix up the masturbation thing that he needs at the end of every sex section, or maybe you can break him of it saying, I've had mine, you've had yours, we're going to bed. But don't be surprised if 20 minutes later when he thinks you're asleep, the bed starts shaking. Hi, Dan.
2: I'm a longtime fan from upstate New York. I'm calling because I did a bad thing. I snooped on my boyfriend's cell phone and that was a violation of his privacy and a really immature way for me to go about looking into his extracurricular activities. But it is what it is. Um, We've only been dating for six months, but we really hit it off and things were going pretty well. But he recently told me that right before we started dating, He had a one-night stand with his mother's 40-something-year-old, recently divorced administrative assistant, who is really gorgeous and leggy and blonde, despite being quite a bit older than we are. We're about... I'm in my late 20s. He's he's 29, going to be 30. Um, He has her in his phone as Chanel Armani, because she's very well-dressed, and also because his mom... He didn't want his mom to know when she was texting him. Um, I found the story kind of titillating at first, but it never occurred to me that he might try to do it again while we were dating. I just thought it kind of happened right beforehand. So I'm an acquaintance of this woman because I know my boyfriend's mom really well. So when I saw her out this past weekend, it seemed really strange that she kind of obviously avoided making eye contact with me, didn't say even a polite hello, even though we saw each other. So I started thinking about what that might be because of, thought it might be because she felt awkward, but this happened so long ago that I thought there should be water under the bridge, but I still stayed a little bit suspicious. This morning while he was sleeping, I saw a window of opportunity to see if they were still talking and I shouldn't have taken that opportunity, but I did. Sure enough, about three months ago, a while ago, but still long after we had established that we were exclusive, we were a couple, I saw that he was actively trying to arrange a fuck session with her after she sent him a risque selfie. And from what I saw of the conversation, nothing came of it. She ignored it. But still, we were sleeping together without comments at that point. I was over the moon for this guy. still am. And he was trying to with his mom's secretary on the side. So in a fit of rage, I woke him up. I told him, I'm sorry I violated your privacy, but I discovered you were trying to hook up with Chanel Armani again while we were dating. So he dismissed me as crazy, and he claimed that we weren't really together at that point, told me to leave. Um, We were together at that point, and I thought things were going well with us. And Dan, I'm not sure, I'm not asking you to tell me what I want to hear, but just wondering if you could help put Some things in perspective put my mind somewhat at ease. Um, I know I did something wrong. I care about this guy a lot. I love him. We've been using the L word. But now I'm feeling like he committed an offense that I wish I didn't discover. And then I committed a terrible offense by discovering it surreptitiously. And now I'm the cause of our potential breakup. So anyway, just tell me what you think. Thanks, Dan.
1: So from the sounds of it, He fucked this woman while you guys were dating but before you were explicitly in a monogamous committed relationship. Uh, But you assumed that you were in a monogamous relationship at the point that he fucked this other woman. Um, So it it seems to me that the offense here is all yours, (laughs) that you went snooping and you found something out that you would rather not have known. Uh, He did something a little dirty, a little sexy uh, that may have been you know, in a gray area because he was dating somebody but there wasn't any, a commitment. There wasn't an exclusive commitment that you assumed it was exclusive doesn't make it exclusive when you're dating, when you're just dating, when you're just a few months into a new relationship. Um, and so if I were you, I would stuff this administrative assistant down a memory hole, pretend you don't know what you goddamn well do know and apologize to him for snooping and finding something out. That you didn't need to know, that has no way impacted your relationship, that you really did have a right to know. As for the woman uh, that you occasionally have to interact with, uh, enjoy the stink eye. She'd clearly like to fuck your boyfriend again, right? But she can't because he's made a monogamous commitment to you. So you win. You don't have to feel attacked or disempowered by her or in any way undermined by her. You didn't have to resent her at all. Be gracious. Be the bigger person. You won. You got the boy. You got the dick. And she got squat. So apologize to him. And then spend a day getting hammered to blast those brain cells out of your skull that are specifically attached to this memory. And while you're doing that, just think about some shitty fucking things you might have done in the first few months that you were together that maybe he would be upset if he found out. But there's got to be something. I'm sure you didn't fuck your dad's golf partner or anything like that. But there may be some things early on in the relationship that you did that – would be documented because now we text and everything leaves a trail forever, a digital trail that people don't think to erase. And there may have been some things you thought about him or said about him or some hesitations or doubts you had that if he went and read it, he would be very hurt too. And then stuff all this fucking shit down the memory hall. If he didn't have an explicit stated sexually exclusive monogamous commitment, he didn't do anything really – that wrong that you assumed it was a monogamous relationship at that point does not magically make it a monogamous relationship he was dogging around he was being a bit of a cat and a dick but at a time in your relationship when he kind of had that license men we're shits we'll be here uh for the rest of recorded human history hey dan i'm
2: calling about episode 356 um, just a comment. I, I totally agree with you with the woman that called. And she was giving her boyfriend a blowjob, and he had a weird look on his face, so she erupted into giggles, and then
5: he had a had a reaction to that. I totally, totally agree with you sometimes. We just have to roll with things. However, I, I would like to add that there was a very popular and famous, I think, study done that when interviewed about what they were most afraid of from the opposite sex, women said violence from men and men said being laughed at. So I totally agree with what you said. However,
2: that can be a big um, sensitive issue for a lot of people. Thanks. Love your show. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 356 regarding the 22-year-old woman who's been online dating for two years and hasn't found someone. Um, I did that for a while, so I felt that I could supplement the expert opinion that she got. So, first of all, I highly doubt that she's aimlessly hideous as uh, Christian assumed she must be because, you know, people who are unconventionally attractive are usually very well aware of that already and already blame their romantic problems on their looks, so they don't need to call a dice columnist to ask what's wrong with them. They already think they know. So I'm going to assume that her looks are fine and she's either not getting as many responses that she'd like or just not meeting the kind of people that she'd like to date. So with that in mind, the number one thing she needs to do is lose the desperation because that stuff can make a two out of any 10 and nothing sends guys running to the hills faster. Two, she should get some straight male opinion about her photos because she might actually be really surprised about what guys find appealing in pictures because... I was. And three, just sending messages to guys is really not enough. I found that the generic messages that could be sent to anybody got hardly any responses. And I'm a relatively reasonably attractive girl living in New York, so it ain't the messenger, it's the message. If there's nothing in the profile that she wants to talk about, she should move on. I don't care how cute he is. If the profile is so boring that she can't find a single thing to ask him, the date will also suck. And finally, if her problem is not is that she's not meeting people that she wants to date, then she should just maybe try playing with the algorithm. I wasn't thrilled with the people I was meeting, so I erased all of my answers and then only answered the questions that I really cared about, and I got a completely different set of people. One of them has been my boyfriend for almost two years, so uh, despite... Everything Christian Rudder said, uh, my boyfriend is awesome and way cuter than me. So, she just relaxed, keep her sense of humor, and have fun. Hi, I have a comment for the OK OKCupid caller on episode 356. I would just say I've been using OK OKCupid for probably about the past five years. I've gone on several dates and had several failed relationships, and what I really to realize essentially over the past two months is that I just really wasn't ready to date anyone. I wasn't completely happy in myself and I was looking for happiness in others. So uh, maybe since you are having such a struggle, it's time to kind of look at yourself and determine whether that is the best avenue for you to go
8: down at this time in your life.
1: And we're going to leave it there. A big thank you to all the Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers out there. We really appreciate your support. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. Give us a call to record a question or comment for a future show. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dance Savage. Buy my new book, American Savage, in bookstores now and at Amazon and other web places. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth. And Nancy, we will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading